optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now what is it an appropriate time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the 4-Hour Body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, here we go. It's a late night, folks. That's Abu from Aladdin. And this is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to, every episode, deconstruct a world-class performer of some type. They could be from chess, they could be from entertainment, sports, business, etc. In this episode, we have a very special guest because he is one of my childhood-slash-adolescent icons heroes, role models. Dorian Yates. Dorian Yates took the already extremely extreme sport of bodybuilding and took it to a new level. He is a six-time Mr. Olympia. And a lot of what he did in terms of innovating and training influenced what I later put into, say, the four-hour body in terms of Occam's protocol and many other things. You can say hello to him on Twitter, at Dorian underscore Yates, or on the Facebook. He is facebook.com forward slash Dorian Yates, D-Y. And he, along with, I would say, Coach Dan Gable of Iowa, who is coming, I promise you that, had a huge influence on a lot of my thinking and a lot of my physical training. In this particular conversation, we dig into all sorts 
of topics that I've been dying to ask Dorian since I was 14 or 15 years old. We talk about his relationship to pain. We talk about specific workouts like his leg workout. How does he warm up? Common mistakes, misconceptions about him. When has he surpassed limits? What is his self-talk when he's going for a PR, a personal record? We talk about his favorite books. It goes on and on and on, including why he views freedom as not giving a fuck. <laughs> he is a fascinating guy to speak with, came from nothing, built himself up into a hero in his chosen sport, and has since reinvented and redefined himself in Spain, of all places. So we cover it all, and I sincerely hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. There are many cases when you meet your heroes and they have clay feet. You're disappointed. But in this case, I came away having much more respect for Dorian, and I already had a lot, and much more fascination with this character who is truly multifaceted. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dorian Yates. Dorian, welcome to the show. Okay, Tim. Thanks for having me on. I am so excited to have you on the show. And uh, I would like to start with thanking you on behalf of a young lad. This was probably somewhere between 17 and 20 years ago, who emailed you out of the blue because he had a sports nutrition company and you got on the phone with him and you're very, very gracious. Ultimately, he couldn't make it worth your time to become any type of sponsored athlete or uh, affiliated with the company, uh, but you really took the time and it was very memorable and that person was me. So <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> and the company was first brain quick and then body quick and then body quick and it moved around and ended up just fine. Uh, had uh, taken me on my own journey, but I have followed you and your career from as, as early as I can really remember gathering a handful of icons in my youth. And we had Dorian Yates, and then we had Dan Gable, legendary wrestling coach. And uh, I was very much impacted in terms of how you think and approach training to start with. And there's a, there's a lot more to that. But what I was not familiar with at the time, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have no context on, is a bit of your background and childhood. Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like? Yeah, well, um, initially, I guess it was quite idyllic because I was brought up on a little, what we call in England, a small holding. So it's kind of like a very small farm. Um, and we had horses there and dogs and chickens and all kind of animals and stuff like that. So that was pretty cool. Um, but everything changed when I was 13 and my father died from a heart attack. Um, and then my mom was going to get remarried. We moved to Birmingham, uh, which is a uh, second biggest city in UK. So I went from a rural, you know, kind of a more rural existence to, you know, my father dying and moving to the city. And, uh, when I was 16, um, I, I left home. Um, my mom wanted to go live and back in the, you know, back in the countryside and so on. And, um, I decided to stay on in the city. So I was 16 years old, um, no qualifications from school and nowhere to live. Really. I was just living at a friend's place and stuff like that. And when I was 18, I got arrested on 
it was really just a stupid thing. Me and some friends were drunk and uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time. But anyway, um, I got sent to a detention center when I was 18, uh, which is like a youth jail facility, I guess. Um, the idea is to put the, you know, young guys that are getting in trouble, put them in there for a short period of time. And it's very kind of yeah, military, the discipline, you're marching everywhere, you do a lot of sports and you like try to learn uh, some kind of skill or, you know, job or something like that while you're in there. Um, in any case, uh, they had weights in there, which I'd done a little bit of previously and, you know, saw the magazines and everything. And I think I trained for about six months when I was at school. I uh, was doing karate first and then started doing a bit of weight training. So I had an interest in a little background in there. And uh, in the facility, they had weights in there. And uh, I got, you know, you had to do this. I remember the first, one of the first times we were in there in the sports hall, you know. Uh, they give us this, like, circuit training to do, you know, squats, um, pull-ups, push-ups, all kind of like in a circuit and you had to go around the circuit three times and do so many reps and, you know, when you finish, sit down. So I went around, <clears throat> around that thing three times and, and sat down and the prison officer was like, you know, thought I was making fun or something. It's like, <laughs> you got to go, you got to go around three times. I'm like, I did go around three times, uh, you know, and uh, he didn't believe me, so he made me do it again. Um so I was uh, stronger than there's a few hundred guys in there. I was stronger than most of them, and had you know the best physique, and I was good with the weights. And uh, I, I, you know, at that point, I think I found something that was you know, stop screwing around. There's something here you can be, you could do something with. I think at that point was was as far as it went. You know, when you left home at 16 or separated from a what separate path from your mother what was that yeah. conversation like i mean was there a particular dinner did she see it coming was it a total surprise uh no um well the story is my mother moved to birmingham um after my father died to remarry uh, another gentleman and then quite tragically had a heart attack as well within i think it was in within two years so um my mom had no reason then to to stay in the city, I guess. So she wanted to move back, and she discussed with me whether I'd want to do that or not. And I said I didn't want to do that, so I just decided to go my own way, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I was watching a documentary about you recently, which was uh, at least co-produced by a, the person who introduced us. Uh, well, introduced us, I should say, the, the second time, 17 years later, Brian Rose of London Real. And... There is the observation that there are very few pics. It's hard to find a picture of you smiling before 1997. No, that's something I, you know, I didn't really realize myself, I guess. Um, but I think it was a case of me being so tunnel visioned uh, in the pursuit of what I was doing. It's almost like it's not that I wanted to do it; it's I had to do it, you know, and. Um, there wasn't much time for fun, you know, <laughs> really. <laughs> you know, people used to say to me, why why don't you smile on stage? Because previous to me, most of the girls, would, you know, they would pose on stage and smile and try to look happy. And uh, I just couldn't fake it. I mean, by the time I got to a contest, you, you're totally exhausted and tired and you're dehydrated and your body fat's low and you've been on a diet for three months and uh, – for me, it was a competition. It was a war. I was going there to win. So I was not really in a, 
you know, smiling kind of mood. So I think I brought a new, a whole new kind of persona to the sport that wasn't there before, not purposely, but just by being myself, I think, but just being genuine. Why did you, or how did you get the nickname, the shadow? I got the nickname, the shadow from, um, uh, a good friend of mine and probably the most respected writer in, uh, bodybuilding. His name's Peter McGough. And it's a funny story because Peter McGough was a, um, a reporter for a small British magazine when I did my first competition. And eventually Peter would become the editor of Flex magazine, which is Joe Weider's, you know, famous bodybuilding magazine uh, in the States. Anyway, um, Peter was the one that came up with that nickname because I was kind of the opposite to uh, – <clears throat> what bodybuilders generally were at that time, you know, quite extrovert and wanted to bring attention to themselves. And, and I was the opposite. And my policy was to go to a contest, like my first contest <clears throat> turned up and people, you know, never heard of me. And they were quite shocked to, at how good my development was. And then I would, you know, disappear and keep covered up and keep in my gym. And, <clears throat> you know, there's no internet, no social media or anything like that. So the only exposure you'd get through was through the magazines. And, um, so I'd go to a contest, win the contest and disappear and just go back to my gym and concentrate on my training. So, um, I was somewhat elusive, I guess, compared to, uh, the other characters in the sport. So that's where the name, the shadow came from. And what was, what was the gym like where you built your physique when you would vanish and go back across the pond to the UK? Could you describe the gym where you were building your physique? Yeah, the gym was um, well, it was right in the center, uh, city center of Birmingham, um, and the building is probably one of the oldest buildings in the center. You know, very few hundred years old, I guess. Um, and it was in the basement of this old building where the gym was, and I think it was something like, including the changing room and everything, is less than two thousand square feet. So, very small. Um, you go down some narrow stairs into this basement. So it's very much like a dungeon. It, it reminds me of some of the dungeons I've seen in the old castles. I mean, they're always in the, you know, you go down, uh, there's no windows down there. So <clears throat> you kind of get down there, you're totally isolated. And I remember people used to be nervous to, to come through the door and go down the stairs because, you know, it's like the steps into descending into hell or something. You don't know what's down there and you can hear all these weights clanking and smell, you know, smell all the sweat and hear people grunting and groaning. And so people were actually kind of real scared to go down there. Uh, <laughs> well, well, it was a good thing. It wasn't a commercial venture, uh, at that point. I, actually it was my gym and I opened it in the eighties, uh, when gyms were far and few between, at least in the UK. So we're doing good business, but in the nineties, it really became my base for training and we didn't care too much whether, uh, you know, trying to get the the members in and so on. So it's kind of like, if you like it, you can come down and train here and pay your fees. If you don't, we don't really care, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> it, was, it was not a commercial venture at all. <laughs> it's a workshop. Uh, it, uh, it, it comes to mind that, uh, a lot of people listening are, are, are perhaps not familiar with bodybuilding or have done some training, don't know much about your career. When you were at, say, your um, your peak in terms of, of training, whenever you felt like it was most dialed in, 
what did your workout split look like over the span of a week or two weeks? Is there perhaps an example of what that might have looked like? Yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of evolving over the time, but what I settled down to um, when I was professional, and let's be clear, if you're a professional bodybuilder, then this is your profession, so you can dedicate all your time to doing this. But even having said that, there's a limit to how much you can train if you want it to be productive. Um, so I'd split my body into four different workouts. It would be um, chest and biceps, one workout. Legs would be a separate workout, and I would include hamstrings and calves in there. I really had pretty strong calves from from the time I started, so they weren't a priority. So other people might want to do things differently. You know, you've got to uh, design everything tailored to the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was two workouts back to back. Then I'd take a day off, um, and then I'd have a a back workout, and the next day after that, we shoulders and triceps, and another day off. So that's a six day cycle, and that was flexible as well, um, depending on how I felt. So. Very often after a leg day, it was so exhausting and so depleting, not just on the legs, but on the whole, you know, your whole system and nervous system and so on. Um, So very often it would be a two-day break after that. So that meant that I was getting around to training everything just once a week or once every six days, seven days, depending on how I was feeling. So I've seen footage of people vomiting after your leg workouts, and uh, you mentioned people would be intimidated or afraid when they went down into the dungeon, and it seems like that was particularly common with those people you invited to do leg day with you. What what did your leg day? What might a work a leg day workout look like? Well, you know, if you work, if you write it down on a piece of paper. It doesn't mean much. It doesn't look like much. It's nothing special. So let's. Let's um, let's say how it would look on a piece of paper. It would be three sets of leg extensions, three sets of leg press, and two sets of squats on a hack squat machine or a Smith machine. Earlier in my career, I did do free squats, but I stopped doing them as I felt they weren't that productive and the injury risk was, was too great for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be quads. And after that would be two sets of leg curls, two sets of stiff-legged deadlifts, two sets of standing calf raises and two sets of seated calf raises. So, hey, that looks like a breeze, right? That's not much written down on a piece of paper. (laughs) But the point is, is what you put into it. It's the intensity that you put into those sets. And even, uh, let me take you through the first exercise leg extensions. The first set would be quite light and quite easy. So the the goal there is to get uh, in touch with the muscle you know, feel the muscle contract and stretch and get the blood in there so it's warming up. The second set would be more difficult, but not to absolute maximum. Um, and then the third set is the one that I call the working set or the one that really, really counts because the other two, they're within your capacity. So they're not going to do anything, quite frankly, apart from warming you up mm-hmm. because your body has no reason to change if it's working within its capacity. Well, you know, why would it? Um, you have to overload it. You have to give it something that it's not used to. That's that's going to be a shock. Um, basically, muscle growth is an adaptation to stress. So you've got to give your muscles more stress than they're accustomed to. Otherwise, they won't change. Quite basically, that's it. So um, that last set, 
you just got to put everything into it. And it's not about throwing weights around and screaming and shouting. It's about concentrating. It's about doing the movement correctly. It's about moving the weights slowly under, under control, even when it gets absolutely torturously hard and impossible to do those last reps at the end. That's where we have a training partner to come and help you squeeze out those last couple of reps. And when you do go to what's true muscular failure uh, with a large muscle group like the legs and, and glutes and so on, I mean, it's absolutely exhausting because you use so much oxygen. So after that set, you'll, you know, you'll be breathing like a train. You probably start to feel very nauseous and so on so if you're not you know if you're not used to that kind of work then very often people do vomit yeah it's not my goal it's not my goal particularly to get them to do that but you know sometimes it's a bit of a shock um uh, but pe most people don't train with me all the time so i'm trying to like part of my job as i see it as a trainer is to take them to show them where they can go mm-hmm um, so, which I'm very good at because I can observe people and I know exactly what they can do, where their limit is, and they don't know that yet. So it's like me taking them by the hand and then like taking them out there and like, you know, this is where you got to be. And, and the third set is to true, true muscular failure. True muscular failure. And then, in my opinion, you don't need to do another set on that particular exercise. Um, so we move on to another exercise, which for, for argument's sake could, could be leg press. Mm -hmm. Um, now we're involving the glutes and maybe a little bit around the lower back that we didn't hit on the leg extensions. So we're going to warm up again, one or two sets depends what you need. And again, then absolute failure. You're going to have one guy either side of the leg press machine to make sure, you know, you're safe while you go to absolute failure and perhaps they're going to help you a little bit on the last uh, last two reps. Um, so it's all about the intensity, probably get through this, um, workout in around 40, 45 minutes. Um, so very intense, uh, to, to stress the muscles, give them something they're not used to. And then the rest of your job as a bodybuilder is really recovering from that stress and repairing your body. You know, you've got to, re you've got to recover first and then you can repair and hopefully overcompensate a little bit. And if, if we were looking at, say, the leg extension exercise, and hypothetically, let's say your, uh, your working set weight is 100 pounds, yeah. uh, how, what, what is the repetition range or the time under tension range that is your target for failure if you have one? And then if, it, if 100 pounds is your working set, what might yeah. your first and second set use? Well, actually, we've got this all documented because now I am uh, I have a, my certification program, DYHIT, so Dorian Yates High-Intensity high Training. So we've got this all documented, and the guideline would be if your maximum set, so Tim, you, 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 know, you reckon you can do 100 pounds on the leg extension for, for 10 reps. That, that, that'll be a max. So we'd probably start with half of that, like 50% mm -hmm. uh, for your first set, nice and light. Uh, second set probably 70%, so 70 pounds in this case, um, and then you know ready to rock and roll on on the 100 pounds, and you thought you could do 10, but we will probably get like 13 or 14 out of you. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you beyond what you thought, and then uh, that's the lesson in itself to say, hey, 
you know, you can go a little bit more. And these are the ones that count. The last one or two reps at the end of the set, that's the magic. That's where the magic happens, you know. Definitely. And if you, and if you can do 100 pounds on a leg extension for 10 reps last week, if you did that last week, you can do that the next, the rest of your life, man, and nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That, that I'll guarantee you. And I see it happen all the time. Um, people will get some progress first year, maybe 18 months, uh, but that, then the body becomes accustomed, becomes smart, you know, we don't want to keep adapting to this stress. So it just, you know, uh, you got, you got to really push it to get results beyond that point. And, uh, I won't spend this entire time in the weeds, but I'm so curious just to whet people's appetite for the documentation that you mentioned between the say first light set, the second heavier set and the third work set, how much rest do you take between those sets? Or, or how well, do you how do you know when you're ready I, to go to I the next? I don't like to work with uh, too much with you know a stopwatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of observe somebody if I'm training them, or I teach them to observe themselves. Uh, and basically, the guideline is you rest in between the sets as long as as long as you need, so that you will be able to do the following set um, to muscular failure. So let's say we did, you know, we did a set of leg press and you're breathing like a steam train and we jump on and try and do another set after 30 seconds. You, you're going to fail uh, due to um, cardiovascular failure rather than real muscular failure. Um, and on the other hand, if we rest, you know, way too long between the sets, we're going to lose, lose some of the intensity of the workout. So... It's kind of a balancing thing. You've got to rest long enough so your breathing is somewhat normal so that you're not going to run out of gas on your next set. And so it will depend on the size of the muscle groups being trained. If you're doing a squat, leg press, deadlift, uh, exercises like that, multi-joint exercises that are using the largest muscles in your body, there's going to be a huge oxygen debt if you go to failure. Um, so you're going to need to rest longer between those sets as opposed to, Hey, we're just on a bicep curl, you know? Um, so I think if, if it's really heavy leg training, it could be three or four minutes between the sets easily. Whereas, you know, bicep curl or deltoid raise, you could be a minute or less. Got it. And what there's one back, well, it's not limited to back, but one exercise I would love to talk about, and that's the bent row. So I remember way back in the early 90s, I saw a lot of photographs of you performing bent rows with a palms up a supinated grip. And so for, for people listening who may not uh, be able to easily distinguish, I had a lot of trouble remembering supinated and pronated. And so if you want to have drink soup out of your hand, then you have to turn it up. So if with the palms up, palms uh, up, supinated, yeah. And do you, uh, could you describe how you uh, performed the bent row. It doesn't have to be that variation, but, uh, yeah. And, or how you teach people to do it. Like what, what is the right way to do a bent row in your mind? Well, you know, first of all, I should say I'm, uh, you know, uh, I'm very studious. I like to study things. I studied nutrition right from, you know, from day one, I bought books on nutrition and studied nutrition. I bought, you know, I must've had every book that's been published, every magazine from the early eighties until, the day I retired. So, um, I've read everybody else's training articles and books and everything. So gleaned a lot of information from here and there. 
And the bent over row, I came up with that position, lifting my body up above parallel. The old traditional way to do bent over rows was with the body parallel to the floor, a <clears throat> fairly wide grip and pulling the bar into the chest, which is fine if you want to work the upper back, uh, rhomboids and lower trapezius and so on. But the area that I saw that was lacking in most bodybuilders was the middle to low lats. And when that's fully developed and it's thick and you get that Christmas tree separation, it looks really dramatic, you know? And, and just, uh, just to pause there, for people who don't know yeah. what that might mean, I was going to bring this up later, but just Google Dorian Yates Christmas tree back <laughs> to yeah. see what this looks like. Well, you get the Christmas tree kind of shape, uh, the separation between the where the lats uh, attach and the, the spiny erector. So obviously you've got to be in very lean condition, literally no uh, body fat there. So you can see all the separation, fine separation of the of those muscles. So what I was trying to do was to thicken my mid and lower lats. Um, naturally, my, my lats are very wide. Uh, always had a good back. But I got beaten twice in professional bodybuilding. The first was my uh, debut in the professional ranks. And I was beaten by a guy called Mohammed Benazizer in my first show, which was called Knights of Champions in New York, 1990. If anyone wants to go and look, Mohammed Benazizer was an incredible bodybuilder. Very short. I think it was only like 5'4 or something like that. But anyway, he beat me. And his back was like 3D thickness, you know. And mine wasn't quite there yet. So I got inspired by that um, start working on my lower lats mid-back. And I realized with the reverse grip, I could really kind of pull the elbows uh, further back at the top and squeeze and really contract that the lower lats. Um, so that's why I started working with the reverse grip. And between Mohammed Benazizer, who beat me in my first contest, and Lee Haney, who beat me in my first Mr. Olympia, where I got second, and Lee Haney, again, was had that super like three-dimensional thickness on the lower lats, uh, he wasn't quite as lean with the separation, but he had very impressive thickness. So those two guys pushed me to like, you know, further concentrate on that area and, and thicken it up. And actually, I became <laughs> really well known for that in the end. Probably more than those two guys. I would, I mean, certainly based on my obsessive reading of all the magazines at the time, I think that's that's certainly true. And when you're performing an exercise like that form of row. Do you think much about uh, tempo in terms of the speed of lifting? Are there any pauses? Uh, how, how do you think about that? Absolutely. <clears throat> well, first of all, you need to understand the, the function of the muscle and the exercise and how that's um, performing the, the function. Uh, you need to kind of get your head inside the muscle so you feel it stretch, you feel it contract, you almost become like part of the fibers. And I often say bodybuilding is really the opposite of weightlifting or powerlifting, where their job is to get the weight from point A to point B. However, you know, the easiest or best way to do that is. Um, so they use momentum, they use mechanics, they use as many muscle groups to lift the weight, whereas a bodybuilder is using the weight as a tool, so to speak, uh, in order to put maximum stress on the particular muscle group they're trying to isolate and work so it's very important um to move the weights in a controlled manner uh, and not to create any kind of swing or momentum to to move the weights 
And the most important thing that people don't realize is that you have different phases of the rep. You have the positive, which is the lifting, which everybody kind of concentrates on. And then you've got the lowering of the weight or the negative phase, which people kind of just tend to rush through. Um, but I think a lot of the muscle damages occurs on the negative part of the rep. So, <clears throat> you know, we could argue which one's more important, the positive, the negative. I say, I don't know. So <laughs> let's do both <laughs> of them to the absolute maximum, you know. Um, and you're always stronger in the negative phase of an exercise. So unless you're slowing down the negative, unless you're consciously slowing down the negative part of the movement, you're never going to fully tax that part because you might fail on the lifting. You know, say you're doing bench press and you're pushing it up, right? And you can't push any more in a positive you know, way of pushing the weight up. But if somebody lifted the weight to the top to you, you could probably lower two or three more because the negative uh, phase of the muscle is not exhausted. So in order to get somewhere near exhaustion of the negative phase, you need to slow that down. So I tell people, you know, do the positive quite explosively but not swinging and then consciously slow down the, the negative although i don't like to you know count seconds and so on how did you who, how did you connect with mike menser and who is mike for people who don't know <clears throat> well as i said i did a lot of studying and uh, i think i'm quite a logical thinker and mike menser was a uh, mr universe professional bodybuilder and top competitor in in uh, Mr. Olympia, and Mike was around and in the magazines when I started reading magazines, and he was uh, had a kind of unique training system, I guess, called heavy duty, and this was short uh, relatively compared to how the other guys were training anyway, short, intense workouts, and Mike would be the first one to say that he got um, pretty much all his principles from a guy called Arthur Jones who um, made a line of exercise machines called Nautilus machines way back in the 70s. And Arthur Jones was, I guess, a pretty brilliant guy. And he was a self-made billionaire with no financial interest in the bodybuilding world, really. He just made these Nautilus machines because he felt they were the best way to build muscle. And it was something he was very interested in. He used to have uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mike Menser, KCBA, to all these guys go out to his place in florida to train anyway arthur was the first guy to say you know what's the science behind muscle growth and to point out that the intensity is really the key factor intensity and recovery and uh, so on so all the the principles uh, of heavy high intensity training weight training come originally from arthur jones got refined by mike mensa and mike mensa was somebody that i admired very much and uh, you know so I guess I took those methods, maybe refined them more uh, over the years. Um, but the guy that deserves the credit for originally pointing out um, a lot of facts uh, is the first guy to talk about genetics, you know, about previously to that, you know, it'd been sold the story that, you know, everybody could be Mr. Universe or Mr. Olympia if you train like Arnold and eat like Arnold and so on. Uh, Arthur Jones is a first guy to point out scientifically that's you know it's not possible um people have different genetic uh, abilities to to build muscle just like they have for running and jumping and singing or whatever else it is you know right yeah i mean it's 
it's the the raw materials that you begin with, whether it's you have better myostatin inhibition than someone else or fill in the blank. There, there's so many variables, known and unknown. And for people who have only now heard the name Arthur Jones for the first time, I highly recommend, he's a very colorful character and a good writer also, checking out some of his earlier, his bulletins that he would put out and some of his writing. He had a crocodile farm. He was a, he was a very, very odd yeah, and eccentric, but smart guy. guy. Yeah, he had, um, you know, he had gorillas as well. And one time, there's a, <laughs> there a picture of one of the gorillas in the Nautilus pullover machine. <laughs> oh, so, uh, you know, I think they had to must have had to put the gorilla on some heavy sedatives or something to get that picture in the Nautilus pullover machine. But that's a pretty f- famous picture. Yeah, he's a colorful guy and uh, obviously a very, very smart guy and a thinker and. Uh, you know, uh, I, I read all his stuff. I read Mike Mensa's stuff. And then that was kind of coupled with my own observations in the gym that if I did more than a certain amount or if I trained more often, my progress would just come to a halt. Mm-hmm. And then I would, you know, get run down, get tired, take a week off. And guess what would happen after I had a week off from the gym? I'd go back and boom, I was stronger. Why was that? It was because my body was exhausted and depleted and it wasn't recovered. I took a week off and it recovered and rebuilt itself and I was stronger. So uh, there was a lesson there. you got to train. you got to put stress on the muscles. you got to break them down. And then you must let your body recover. And, you know, that takes time and it takes uh, good nutrition as well. When you uh, observe people who are attempting or hear from people who are attempting some form of high intensity training or some type of uh, rational limited volume to failure training, what are the most common mistakes uh, that you see or the most, some of the most common misconceptions either? I think the most common misconceptions is um, that you got to use a ton of weight. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if you look at my training videos of blood and guts uh, that we filmed, yes, I'm using what can be considered very heavy weights in there, but I'm using them in the correct way. So if I wanted to lift more weights in those particular exercises, I probably could have done, but I would have to do it in a form that was not, you know, was not putting the maximum on the muscles that I'm trying to train. So um, the first misconception is, that you're going to be throwing around tons of weight. You're going to be using the weight as a tool. That's, uh, I think that's the main mistake that people make. And also because they've read about beyond failure training techniques. So for people who are not familiar, if you're lifting a weight and it gets to a point where you're, you're stuck, you can't complete the rep, then that's failure. You can go beyond that point if you've got a training partner there to slightly assist you just to get one or two more reps right at the end of the set. Uh, that's the correct uh, way to do force reps. Um, but people get carried away with it, and then in the gym they've got too much weight on there, and they're doing like one rep correctly, and then the training partners help them on the second and third rep, and that's you know uh, that's not going to get you anywhere apart from injured. So I'd love to talk uh, a little bit about the mental and self-talk. Uh, so in 1990. I want to talk about that loss, but could you place for us, uh, in 1990, where were you living? What were you doing when you were not on stage competing? Okay, in 1990, 
I was living with my um, first wife, or I don't think we were married at that time. We were living together with my son, and we were living in a two-bedroom council estate masonet. So I don't know people in the states would know what a council estate is. I guess it's like I don't know what you call it in the the states, but government housing. Yeah, affordable housing. Uh, affordable house, government housing, whatever. It's not not the best place to live, probably. Um, you know, you used to have noisy neighbors, always stuff like this, problems going on. Um, so I was living there. Um, I was making a living from the gym, which I had had um, for about three years at that point. And there were not a lot of gyms around. So, that you know, I was making okay living from the gym uh, and supporting my wife and uh child and you know uh the expenses uh that they incurred in bodybuilding with the diet and the supplements and all that kind of stuff um so that's where i was at and um i was the best you know i'd won 1988 i won the the british championship heavyweight and overall and that qualified me to be a professional and I chose the show Night of the Champions, as it was called at the time, which was kind of a very prestigious show to like try and do a debut at and quite well respected. And if you got in the top five of that show, you could go on to compete in the Mr. Olympia. Um, so it's quite an attractive show to do. Um, so at this point, you know, um, I've been doing this thing for five years now, competing and training and really absolutely putting everything into it and you know sacrifice social life sacrifice friends time with the family and you know if you've got a family then that means they're sacrificing as well so i I observed a lot of people around me a lot of people following this bodybuilding dream you know and they weren't getting anywhere and they weren't going to get anywhere because they didn't have what it took but you know they were still making all these sacrifices and you know um, damaging relationships and business and money and lots of things, you know, that you're totally focused on this thing. So I said, I don't want to be one of those guys. And I've observed the way things work. If you're going to be a top professional and you're going to make it in the sport of bodybuilding as a professional, then you're pretty much going to make a mark from, you know, from your your first contest. You, you You don't go into a pro contest and get, 15th place and then the next year win Mr. Olympia because it just doesn't work like that. So if you've got what it takes, it's going to be apparent. You have all of these uh, sacrifices that you're making. You are living in a, a place with its own problems or challenges, certainly. When you found out that you did not win uh, and after that, maybe it's the, the, the night after or the day after, what was your self-talk like? What were you saying to yourself? If you remember, well, I'll, I'll tell you what the self-talk was before I got there, because that's, that's uh, pretty relevant. Um, so I, I saw everything that was going on around me and I said, right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take 18 months off after my British championship win. I'm going to take 18 months off. I'm going to give 100% focus to this contest, absolute everything I've got. And if I don't place in the top five of this contest, then I won't compete again, you know, because um, I haven't got what it takes, basically. So I'll concentrate on the gym. Maybe I'll open another gym, something like that. But 
a sport, you know, being a competitive professional bodybuilder, um, that would be the end for me if I don't place in the top five. So I put myself under a bit of pressure. Um, <clears throat> so in the end, I got second place. But, I mean, it was a great lineup. And some people in there, like Robbie Robinson, I mean, this guy was a hero of mine when I started, you know. Um, and before I went to America, I was pretty much told by everybody that I didn't have much of a chance because I didn't have any name recognition. Uh, I wasn't known by any of the judges or the promoters. I had no publicity in the magazines, da 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 And plus you're English and they're going to favor the American athletes and, you know, all this um, – negative stuff, which I didn't really listen to. I just thought if I'm good enough, I'm good enough. And that's, that's it. Um, so I made a huge impact at the show. Um, the crowd was very vocal and I was their favorite. Um, and from that showing, I got invited to, to California to go to Gold's gym and do a photo shoot for the Weeder magazines and all this stuff. So although I didn't win the contest, um, I probably got more out of it than the guy that did win it right? because, because I was brand new and such a different look and a persona and everything. And the crowd was going crazy. Um, so I was not disappointed at all in getting second. It was like a vindication for me. It was like, wow, I am good enough then. Cause I got second in this first pro contest with no publicity, no nothing. And it was a close second as well. And I beat a lot of really good season bodybuilders and professionals so maybe I do have what it takes. What would you say from, so we're looking at 1990, was that a similar experience to your first Mr. Olympia competition? Was the self-talk before and after the same, or did it change at all? Uh, it was different because um, at this point, my confidence was building because um, the following year, 91, when I did my first Mr. Olympia, earlier in the year to, to qualify for the Mr. Olympia, I did this same contest again, Night of Champions. And this time won it. And, you know, I was improved from the previous year. Physique was better. I was feeling more confident, more comfortable with being on stage and doing that uh, part of it. So the one hurdle really was that Lee Haney was Mr. Olympia when I started training. And, you know, so he's the guy that I've been looking up to all these years, you know, uh, as Mr. Olympia. And now I realize I've got to change my mindset because this is no longer the, you know, the hero, the guy. I've got to go there and try and beat this guy. So if I have this, you know, uh, this approach to it, wow, it's Lee Haney, it's Mr. Olympia. And wow, yeah. You know, uh, of course, great respect, but I had to go as a competitor. So I had to say, well, you know, now the guy's a competitor. And you know what? He's, he's a man. He's got two arms, two legs. He lifts weights. And I think maybe I can beat him because nobody lifts weight harder than me. So that made me, you know, gives me a lot of confidence going into it. Um, so it didn't happen. But once again, it was a very close second. And it's the first time that anyone got second on their uh, debut event at, at Mr. Olympia. Um, <clears throat> so there was a couple of firsts there, and um, I was happy with the placing. You know, some people at the contest said, oh, you should have won and what have you, but um, I think uh, at the time it was a fair result. So the, the next question is going to be about 92 to 97, and obviously yeah. feel free to take this off track somewhere else. 
but I've I've always in watching videos of you watching uh, looking at photographs of you training wondered about your relationship to pain. So let's say during that 92 to 97, how did you think about pain or relate to it? And I don't know if that's a, a good question or not, but I've, I've always wanted to ask it. I don't know. I think you become accustomed to pain, you know, and make friends with it and I even look for it. I mean, I, I was, I, know, I was talking to, I was talking to somebody and I was explaining, look, my legs were sore, like can't sit down on the toilet sore for three or four days of every week of my life for like more than 10 years. <laughs> yeah? yeah. So if I was not hobbling around for a few days of every week in pain, uncomfortable to sit down, uncomfortable to sleep, I wasn't happy. I wasn't doing my job properly. So, you know, um, with me, it almost became like I had no fear and it became, it made me maybe a little reckless at times. And perhaps that's why I got injured going ready for con because I was doing stuff before contests that probably wasn't necessary. I realize now. Um, and you know, your, your intake of nutrients is less, you're more dehydrated, you're tired. So the injury risk, uh, gets greater going to a contest. And the two serious injuries I had would have been in the last six weeks before a contest. So, um, but you know, I literally used to go and attack the weights and, uh, you know, you, you, I felt I was indestructible. You often do when you're young, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I had a, uh, certainly not to that ex extreme necessarily, but, uh, well, let me just ask, I mean, how much, how much weight in terms of water and dehydration would you lose in the last 24 to 36 hours? or 48 hours prior to a competition? Um, probably not a lot, hopefully. I mean, um, some people used to do extreme things, but because I was very calculated, I would probably be within uh, within five or six pounds of my contest weight from like a couple of weeks out. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah, and then the last week I would just manipulate um, carbohydrates and water and so on to try and get – uh, a little drier uh, between the skin and so on, so you get the separation of the muscles coming out. But I'll probably lose a couple of pounds the last uh, two days. It, w it wasn't very drastic, but, it, you know, it was the end of – usually I take 12 weeks to specifically dial in for a contest. Mm -hmm. I was uh, – when I had a number of my most serious injuries and needed reconstructive shoulder surgery and – had a number of different tendon and ligament issues. It was always uh, while I was dehydrating for making weight for competitive wrestling. Uh, that So I, I wrestled for more than a decade. And I, yeah. almost all of the major injuries and chronic injuries and issues that I have now, I can trace back to a period of extreme dehydration. Well, that could have been the case with me. I don't, I don't know if it was extreme dehydration or a combination of slight dehydration, extremely low body fat, um, uh, tiredness, right. Uh, you know, it could, it could be all combination of all those factors, but dehydration absolutely is going to increase your risk. I want to come back and hopefully I'm not beating a dead horse here, but I think it's really valuable for people to hear. And I'm fascinated by it. The, how you utilize self-talk because in this conversation with you, in conversations that I've heard of yours 
you seem very good at speaking to yourself well, giving yourself instructions and feedback well. And I, I, what, what brought this to mind was watching footage of you looking at old training journals. And uh, in the journal, not only did you have the specifics of a given workout, but you, <laughs> there was one line, and as I'm not going to be getting this perfectly right, but it was something like, I am ashamed of this workout. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from, from this point on, it's all guns yeah. blazing or something. Could uh, you, yes, stop could, screwing around. You yeah. know? Could, could, you, could you describe how you used that type of written feedback and so on? It's just notes and motivation. And uh, what I would do as well is like set goals. And um, when I, whenever I advise people, I, I tell them this. It's just instead of saying something, get a pen, get a piece of paper, and write it down. It just makes it 100 times more powerful. You know, I'm going to do this. I, I want to lose this amount of weight. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do, you know. But you got to be realistic. I'm going to do this in four weeks. I'm going to lose, I don't know, I'm going to lose four pounds in, in four weeks. And write it down. And then how are you going to do that? Write it down. You know, all everything I wrote, everything down. So I had a plan and um, I'd even rehearse. It's funny. It's almost like instinctively. I think some of it is instinct and some of it was studying. Uh, the whole sports psychology, I pretty much got it down uh, very quickly. You know, I didn't need anyone to, to coach me on it. I kind of found out myself. And plus, you know, reading all the stuff I did and other people, I think Mike Mensa used to advocate keeping a training diary. So I probably picked that up from there. Um, and, uh, even before going to workout, I would sit down with the training diary and I'd look at what I did last week. So this is what I did last week. These are all the exercises, these are all the sets, these are all the reps. Okay. So this is what I want to do today. I want to do, I did 250 pounds for six reps last week. I want to do seven or eight this week. Right, so I'm seven or eight on that bench press. And when I get down on that bench press, the weight's going to feel like this, and I'm going to bring it down, and it's going to feel like this, and I'm going to be wearing this shirt. It's like literally used to visualize the whole workout before I even went to the gym. So, um, so I knew exactly what I was doing in what order and, and everything, and that was just dialed in. So I, I wouldn't even talk to anybody when I went to the gym. You know, I would just do my workout. So you've got to have a plan. You know, if you just wander in the gym and think, Oh, what shall I do today? You're not going to get anywhere. So when you walked in with a plan and let's say you get to a particular exercise where your work set is going to be a new PR for you, a new personal record. Yeah. What is going on in your head between either like when you walk in the gym or in the minutes prior to that, uh, that set? Well, it's just really confirming um, what you're going to do and, you know, why you're doing it. You've got, you got to have a motivation, man. You're not going to put yourself through pain and discomfort unless there's some kind of motivation there. So what's your motivation for doing this and how bad do you want it? And for me, it was like life or death, really. You know, that's, that's how it felt anyway, life or death. I've got to do this. I've got to change my life, and this is what I've got to do, and this is the road I'm going to take. And nothing's going to stop me, but you know, that was my personal motivation. You've got to, you've got, everyone's got to find their own, um, but you're only going to push as hard as you're, you're motivated basically. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit because I, uh, so after one of the Mr. Olympia's 
<laughs> maybe multiple, you were asked, when are you going to start training again? <laughs> and then you would say, well, very straight face next week. And it sort of boggled, yeah. boggled people's minds because they were like, why don't you take a few months off? And you're like, why don't you take a few months off of sex? <laughs> and so, yeah, like, in other words, if you enjoy it, like, I like training. So I'm going to take it, you know, maybe, maybe it would have been good sometimes like a couple of weeks off, probably give my joints a rest and so on. But I was a man with, with a mission and, you know, um, it's hard to like control that fire sometimes. When you say life or death, what was feeding that fire? Was there anything else that was, was driving you or was it just a, f- I, I mean, who knows deep psychological reasons, perhaps, uh, who, who knows? Um, I, I'm sure that, um, because I didn't have an easy childhood and, and you know, uh, particularly close and loving family and all these kind of things that other people might have, um, I think if I had a really comfortable upbringing like that, I probably wouldn't be the driven person I was, you know? So I'm sure there's something there in that in wanting to achieve or wanting to be recognized uh, or something. But uh, in, in any case, it, it, in some ways it felt like I already, already knew that I was going to do this or I had to do this. Um, I don't know if that's, that's easy to understand, but it's, yeah, it's almost like I had to, uh, I knew I was going to do this. What are certain beliefs that you had then that you think were unhelpful now? Uh, if, if you look back at your competitive career or the period of time after that, after you were sidelined, taken out by injuries, uh, what, what are, what are, th- what are beliefs that you had that were unhelpful or things that you've really changed your mind about a lot in, uh, in the last say decade or two or since competing? I think what I struggled with, and I think this is very common with athletes that have had tunnel vision is like, who are you? You know, who are you now that that goal has been, is not there or it's been taken away or however you, however you want to put it. Um, with me, it was injury. So, um, all throughout my career was very controlled, you know, controlled everything. And when I competed and all this kind of stuff and this, I didn't have control of because it was like, you're injured and you can't compete anymore and, and that's it. So, um, I didn't have control over that. And Um, these were, this was bicep and tricep. Injuries. Yeah, it was bicep was the original injury, um, which people although, can see photographs of. It's basically yeah. from your tips of your fingers to your armpit is just black on one arm. That was six weeks before the contest in 1994, and uh, again, you know, six weeks out, maybe maybe a little dehydrated, tired, body fat slow, and I was training too heavy. Uh, for that phase of my training, I was doing 440 pounds bent over rows. And, uh, yeah, the bicep popped. Um, so I wasn't indestructible, you know? And what did you find helpful or unhelpful for finding peace with yourself after losing that singular goal? I think it takes time, you know? It takes time because you've been doing this one thing for so long and you know, it's kind of like, that's all, you know, so it takes some time to readjust and rebalance and, uh, come to the realization of like, okay, that's over. But uh, you know, 
there's uh, you can do anything you want, you know, mm-hmm. anything you want, and, with, and you have more time now. You have more freedom to pursue things and interests, and that wouldn't be possible before because I was on such a strict uh, regime. So in the end, I, I came to appreciate that, but it did definitely take time. You've uh, undergone a transformation. Uh, I, I think many people would say, or certainly the people who've had close exposure to you, uh, among other things, you know, now practice yoga. Uh, yeah. You, instead of wearing only black and gray shirts, you wear <laughs> white and colored shirts, which oddly enough is something that I've started doing in the last two years. Uh, and you've changed locations. You know, you've you've made a lot of of changes to your life in the, in the last say five years, uh, yeah. are there any particular experiences or teachers who have helped you to undergo that transformation? Because you seem like a far happier human being or at peace human being, uh, now than certainly in, in anything that I've, uh, seen of you during competition or shortly thereafter. Yeah, I think it's a case of constantly adjusting and, um, I don't know, at some point I felt, wow, I'm just kind of, you know, doing the same things. Um, maybe I need some more variety. So I just, I started doing some different things and I was looking at my body, you know, uh, I got quite a few injuries. I got the bicep, the tricep and the supraspinatus torn on the left side. So, um, me pursuing what I was doing before, you know, trying to push the weights in the gym was starting to be kind of in some ways could be detrimental and lead to more injuries. Um, so, um, I don't know. I, I, uh, I kind of had a message internally that I need to do something different and I wasn't sure if it was yoga or Tai Chi or something along those lines, <clears throat> but I started doing yoga and, um, I found it amazing for, the, the physical side, uh, a lot more mobility. I didn't realize because I always did some stretching when I was training. So quads and hamstrings, you know, basic stretches. I was pretty good on for, especially for uh, a bodybuilder, I guess. Um, but a lot of the mobility, uh, twisting, things like that was quite limited. Uh, I remember I was talking to a chiropractor friend of mine and it was like, you know, people didn't used to get back problems, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Uh, because they used to sit so much around the campfire in that squat position. And, you know, they sit like that for hours. Uh, and if you can sit like that and you're comfortable, you probably won't have any back problems. So I thought, that's interesting. Let me sit in a squat. And it was like kind of uncomfortable and tight and didn't feel right, you know. Um, so, yeah, I was, uh, I was led to do the yoga. And I enjoyed the physical side of it, the mobility, the stretching and also the kind of spiritual side as well. And I do meditation uh, as well as the yoga. And, uh, but I, you know, I still like to push physically. I do cycling over here in Spain. I've got some good steep hills. So I do cycling up the hills and, you know, people can hear me shouting and screaming at myself going up the hills. there. So uh, I still like to push myself. I do some functional training in, in the gym with ropes and pushing sleds and stuff like that. Um, so I, I, you know, I still love to, to challenge myself. I'm going to do it. I, you know, I'm going to still go pretty hard and I'm very interested now in, um, just keeping cardiovascular fitness, mobility, flexibility, all the things that are re- relevant to me as I'm getting older, you know, this vehicle that we have, that we live in, uh, this machine, the body is the only thing you've got to function in this, uh, 
you know, in this uh, reality. So if it's not working very well, you know, you're not going to have such a fun time, you know. So really that's, you know, my training's all geared to that now, to keeping it efficient, same as the diet. And, you know, I honestly feel great, tremendous. I'm um, 55 next month and I feel great. I feel better than when I was 35. <laughs> well, happy early birthday, number one. And number two, do you remember what your first yoga class was like, or do you have any notable yoga, early yoga experiences that you could describe? I do, yeah. I have a funny story. Um, so I got this thing, you know, I wanted to do yoga, um, but I didn't want to just go to a yoga class or I said, you know what, if I concentrate on this, if I think about it enough, the person will come along kind of thing. So, you know, I put it out there. I want a yoga teacher on it and I ask around and through a, a friend of mine, he said, yeah, I, I know somebody and she's good and I think you'll like her. And, uh, so me and gal, we went along and, uh, the first class with this lady we did. And I thought this yoga stuff, you know, it looks like a piece of cake, right? <laughs> so you, you just stand there and do this and some of the stuff I'm not going to be able to do because I'm physically too big, but you know, it should be all right. And I didn't realize how difficult some of the poses are and how long you hold them. And, uh, you know, your body's not used to that. It's not accustomed to that. If you're used to just powerful, you know, powerful stuff, it's, it's, it's a different kind. So I, I was holding a pose and uh, like a lunging pose and my legs just gave way and I fell on the floor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, like a, this is like a warrior pose, one of those yeah, warrior, warrior two. Yeah, the, that's exactly what it was. It was like warrior two, I think. And I just, my legs just buckled. I couldn't stand up. I fell on the floor. And the yoga teacher looked at me and wrote, you know, lifted her eyebrows up and kind of went, ah, oh, Dorian. You know, like, not so easy, is it, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's got easier now. So, so I think this is actually a good point to ask uh, that there are many different listener and fan questions that came in. You have a okay. lot of fans in my audience, but one of them is, I think, closely related to what we're talking about. This is from Nicholas Meyer. Knowing what you know now, what do you wish you could change about your training program back when you were competing? If anything, like diet, uh, high-intensity training versus volume, anything? Yeah, I've had this question before, so it's something I've uh, pondered on, you know? Right, the only thing that I think would be, well, two things that would be beneficial to me if I could go back and change them uh, would be uh, not training with super intensity, uh, to the absolute maximum, the last two months before a contest where your, uh, calorie intake and so on's restricted and you're doing more cardio and you may be dehydrated and avoid those injuries. That would be great. Um, the other thing is I don't believe I ever really presented the best physique I could on stage because I generally looked better in my opinion. And I can confirm this now by looking at photos and, uh, you know, from a different perspective now, cause I'm not quite so involved. Um, the best physiques which I present would probably be like two or three weeks before a contest. So I always overdid it a little bit, you know, Dorian Yates would never underdo anything. There was always, <laughs> always a tendency to overdo. And that's the thing that needed to be controlled a little bit, perhaps, so those two things are the only things that I would have changed. Um, but would I change them? 
because those events led me to where I am now. So if we went back in time and stopped me from getting injured, this whole story would be different. Maybe I would have competed longer and maybe that wouldn't be good. Who knows? So uh, I, I don't uh, live with any regrets, you know. So, so, so in fact, I probably wouldn't change it. So if, if you were, though, tasked with going back in time and trying to convince yeah. younger Dorian to leave a little bit of slack in the system for the, the weeks leading up to competition to underdo that a little bit because yeah. you looked back at the photos and you were better three weeks out, what would you have said to that young, younger Dorian? Well, I was kind of conscious of that the last couple of years and I was trying not to do it, but still a tendency to overdo it. And, you know, I had good friends who, when I won in Mr. Olympia in 93 and it was probably the most devastating win in the history of the contest that it was just outright first place. And it was a physique, um, size and condition, uh, that had never been seen before. So everyone was saying to me then, well, look, you know, you've got to stop that crazy heavy training you're doing because there's risk involved with that. You can't do that forever. And maybe just kind of cruise now and, you know, hold your position and earn your money. And uh, that probably would be wise advice, but uh, it wasn't exciting for me. You know, I wanted to, I still wanted to try to push the envelope to see how far we could go. Did you ever have this is this came up a number of times from different people and I'm curious as well. What was your plan B if bodybuilding didn't pan out? If you if you, if you had one. Well, um I didn't have a plan B really. Um I I knew that bodybuilding was going to do something good for me and in a very short time I won the British Championships and got a financial backup because of that because I didn't have you know, two pennies to rub together. I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything. Um, somebody uh, backed me and financed me with, with the gym because I was British champion. So very quickly, you know, I was already earning a living now from this thing that I love doing. I've got my own gym. with doing my own equipment that I chose and everything, and I'm making a nice living. So um, that was already happening. I think the question was whether I would be a successful professional bodybuilder or not. If I wasn't, then I probably would open some more gyms. Um, and, and who knows, I was never the guy that was going to be, you know, working for somebody else or doing nine to five. That was never going to happen. So this next question is from Tierney Eaton. Uh, and she asks a question that also came up a number of times and comes up a lot. So I'm sure you've heard some variation of this. What is, the best way for women to build beautiful lean muscle, higher reps with light weights or lower reps with heavy weights. I'm reading books on both, but would love to hear his opinion. It's exactly the same that would build big muscles on a male. It's absolutely no difference in my opinion. There's a lot of hype and a lot of marketing around women's training. Um, if women want to, uh, Change their appearance, shall we say. Change their appearance. There's only a couple of ways you can do that. Uh, you can build muscle and or you can lose fat. That's the only way. I mean, you can't change your bone structure. So what makes your shape apart from your bone structures, your muscles and, and body fat? So uh, you need high-intensity training 
uh, rep range, you know, eight to 12 reps in a set, uh, going to failure and, um, and the rest is diet, you know, to make sure you're getting sufficient protein and eating regular small meals and, uh, keeping a control on your calories so it's not too much but it's enough so there's a lot involved but it's you know i don't see anything different from a lady training to a guy training they've got the same muscles in the same places and they respond to stress in the same way i'd like to just underscore that because i get this type of question a lot and i don't have an opportunity to answer it uh, publicly, uh, or I haven't yeah. taken the opportunity much. So a, f- a few things, just because I think what you said is so important to underscore. There's a lot of sales and marketing to women that is very, uh, I think, insulting, frankly, because they use words like toning and lengthening when you can't. Oh, man. Son, don't don't start with the toning, man. Uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my pet hate. Oh, what well, the f- what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. And well, then I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it means. Actually, what a lady means when she says toning, she means that she's going to look leaner and tighter, right? So her tone is going to look, her muscular tone is going to look better. Although it's a nonsense word, I, I know where you're coming from. And how do you get that look? Easily. Well, not easily, but how do you get it is you build your muscle and decrease the body fat. So the ratio of muscle to fat is higher, and then you're going to look leaner, and you're going to have that look that you call toned. Um, but there's no magic exercise that can do it for you, no magic diet. It's, it's you know, uh, consistent weight training in the gym and good diet. And it's not, you know... It's not that much of a difference in a woman's program to a man's program. It's just, uh, you know, if I'm dealing with a client, I just deal with that client on an individual basis, whether a man or a woman, it, it doesn't matter to me. I just, you know, I figure everything out depending on the, on the individual. Right. And also just for, for women who might be listening and are concerned about getting too bulky or whatever it might be, number one, I would say you have, and then I'm estimating here, but let's just say one-tenth to one-twentieth the free testosterone of a male. And a lot of men have difficulty adding mass. So you're not going to become uh, you know, Mrs. Olympia overnight as a surprise. <laughs> so you can very much yeah. notice the changes. Yeah, and you're not gonna adjust. you're not gonna build muscles by mistake, you know. It's, right. It takes a lot of work to to build muscles, but I, I know where the ladies coming from. Maybe they start lifting, and you know, first few weeks of jeans get a bit tighter or something like that because you you start to build muscle. But you, as long as you control your diet, you'll be losing the body fat at the same time. So you'll get this this look that you're looking for. It's called less body fat and more muscle. Yeah, and that's what you're looking for, and that's why you're called toned and all these kind of nonsense terms. But that's what it is. So if, if a lady wants to change her body, she's got to do weight training. She's got to do resistance training, and she's got to be conscious about her diet. And that's it. Same as a guy. May, is it more difficult for a woman to build muscle and lose body fat? Yes, probably generally speaking, yes. But it's the same process. Even if you look back at some of the physiques that I think uh, have been iconic female physiques, and I'm not saying they were physique competitors in the modern sense at all, but even Marilyn Monroe actually did resistance training. There are photographs of her doing dumbbell work. Absolutely. We, we had a big black and white poster of Marilyn Monroe in the, uh, 
ladies' changing room at Temple Gym down in the dungeon. We say it's the ladies' changing room. It was just like a little cupboard in the wall, really. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> room for one lady to get changed in there. And uh, we had a big black and white uh, of Mallory and Monroe doing bench press with dumbbells. And you've spent, I mean, you've spent a good amount of time also, just so people have context of time around uh, female competitors and uh, who are testing all these different protocols and regimens right alongside the men. So I, I, I don't want them to get the impression that um, you haven't had a lot of direct experience, both coaching and interacting with. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, my wife is a, a world champion uh, figure champion and a Brazilian champion, South American champion. So, um, you know, I, I live with somebody that, uh, that trains as well. So, so we talked a little bit about, uh, gender differences or lack of, of differences in terms of training protocol. Here's a question from, I, I really prefer personal names, but this is from a Facebook page, I guess. <laughs> per, right. Perfect body quest. Okay, fine. Uh, okay. So, so that tells you, uh, but, in any case, the question is, uh, please ask him about the differences in training and nutrition for enhanced versus natural lifters. And, okay. uh, and we can define some terms here. Uh, so, and I'd like to actually clarify something because it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's uh, just a personal note. And so the, the first is enhanced. It can go by a number of different terms. Could be using gear, could be using anabolics, could be using... Uh, you know, PEDs. There are many different ways to phrase it, but also yeah. um, this is just a something that drives me nuts. So I'm going to point it out for people. If you if you look at my Wikipedia page right now, <laughs> there is a, at least there has been a line that says something along the lines of Tim Ferriss has admitted to using uh, like Sustanon 250 HGH, etc. After surgery and that drives me nuts because it's it's what they would call on wikipedia a weasel word i wrote an entire chapter in my second book about the sort of benefits and risks of uh a very methodical anabolic use say after reconstructive surgery which i used after my shoulder was reconstructed so that's something i just want to clear the air on i didn't admit it it makes it sound very shifty I wrote an entire yes. chap chapter on it folks so uh so that all having been said, uh, what are your thoughts on training and nutrition differences for enhanced versus natural lifters? Well, the, the thing with anabolics and, uh, I mean, how they work is they enhance your body's ability to recover from the stress. Um, at some point, uh, your, your body is not going to be able to recover from the amount of stress you're putting on it, and then you're going to reach a plateau. Um, so athletes use uh, mainly anabolic steroids, which are derivatives of testosterone, male hormone, and um, also to some degree growth hormone um, to recover and repair from the workouts. So if somebody is using uh, enhancement uh, or anabolic steroids, let's call it enhancement for argument's sake. If someone's using enhancement, they're going to be able to recover uh, more efficiently uh, than somebody that's not, and they're going to be able to. They're going to take things to a, a higher plateau um, before again they plateau, you know. Um, so if you're not using anabolics, you're not going to be able to train 
like a lot of the guys you read about in the magazines. They might be training five or six days a week and two hours a day and everything. It's not something I recommend, but, you know, some guys do, some professionals do train that much. Um, if you try to do that uh, without enhancing your hormone level, um, you know, you're going to get overtrained very quickly and you're not going to get the results you're looking for. So, I mean, whether you're using anabolics or not, <clears throat> the process is this. You go in the gym and you put stress on the muscles um, and then they have to recover. If after they've recovered, <clears throat> there was sufficient stress, then they overcompensate. So you need to allow enough time for that to happen. So I use this analogy at seminars sometimes, very, very simple uh, analogy, but it gets the point across. Um, if I was to take a piece of sandpaper and rub it across the palm of my hand until it's kind of bleeding a bit and damaged, if I was to leave that for a few days, it would heal up and the skin would be, you know, marginally stronger and thicker than it was before because it wants to protect itself from that stress. Um, and that's basically, you know, what happens with muscle growth. So let's say we take that situation again. I get the sandpaper, rub it across the palm of my hands. It's all red and bloody and, you know, I leave it for a day or two. It's not quite healed yet. It's still a bit red and I go and do it again. We're not getting anywhere, right? We've just got bloody hands. Um, so it's the same thing with uh, training in the gym. You've got to apply stress and then you've got to recover. If you're using steroids, you'll be able to cover more quickly and train more frequently. So uh, it's all about the recovery. Uh, whether you use it or not, you have to be aware of recovery. Um, so it's, it's going to enhance your, your ability to recover from that stress, and you're going to be able to go further than if you didn't use it. That's you know very basically how they work. And and I should also say, obviously, I'm not a doctor. Don't play one on the internet. But there are uh, there are potential risks associated with use and abuse of any of these things for people listening. And if you're two months into your training protocol or a year or whatever, and you're not a professional, there are very few circumstances in which uh, I would recommend uh, certainly any cavalier use, but uh, medical, medically supervised use of a lot of these compounds. So it's not something to be taken lightly as a decision, but it is a reality of almost every competitive sport that has uh, endurance, power output, uh, oxygen carrying capacity as primary determinants of placement and whether it's yeah. cyclists or sprinters or otherwise, uh, even in something like the biathlon, people are, are, would potentially use something like beta blockers to calm their nerves. So they can take more effective shots after elevating their heart rate. So, uh, well, we got a couple of things in, in England, at least when I was a kid, they used to call sports, I don't know why they're called sports, but you've got one called darts where the, you know, <laughs> sure. the guys throw the darts in the board, right? And the other one, snooker, which is a bit like pool. Um, and, you know, even these guys, they're using beta blockers and drinking beer <laughs> to, to help calm their nerves and enhance their game. You know, if, if it's competitive, people are going to do whatever they can to get the edge. And... Uh, I don't recommend them to anybody. I don't tell people what they should do. I just um, kind of be frank about my experiences and uh, leave it to other people. But to be honest, if I was not a um, competitive bodybuilder, I wouldn't. Uh, I don't see the point in using steroids and perhaps opening yourself up to potential uh, health risks 
which which you know which are there uh, over the long period and then you have the other subject of um you know using it therapeutically for uh, uh older guys um that their testosterone levels declining and this causes age-related uh, illnesses and diseases uh which can be um stemmed by putting your testosterone back to normal uh, hormone replacement so to speak or recovering from surgery and other applications so you know um they they, they have uses uh outside of the sports yeah yeah there are definitely legitimate applications even in wasting diseases uh where you have uh, say decreased t-cell count uh so a lot of uh, there are some hiv positive Patients who will use oxandrolone and things of that type. So for, for folks interested, I'd, su- I'd suggest educating yourself. And it's a fascinating subject with, uh, there's some documentaries out there. I think it's Bigger, Faster, Stronger, which was uh, done by Chris Bell and features his brother, Mark Bell, uh, who has become a friend. A fascinating documentary and people can do uh, more homework on their own. So the, the next question is from Mohammed Samar Gulzar, uh, at the peak of your career, were there any days you felt stuck when things weren't moving? What did you do then? Well, you know, when you get to the level of um, top competitive level, Mr. Olympia and so on, um, uh, the, the more developed you get and the higher up you get, the, the actual changes and the gains are very, very small. You know, if, uh, if you put a, you know, three or four pounds of muscle on over the year, uh, when you're a professional level, it would be considered a pretty good gain. Um, so things really do slow down and it's, you're not going to get the kind of progress you got when you, you know, when you first started out. Um, so it's, it's more of a, you kind of cycle the training, you know, you'll train hard for five or six weeks and then you, you back down a little bit, you train lighter and then you go up again. Um, so you're looking for small gains over the course uh, of a year um, at, at that point. So you're not getting the feedback you used to get where, you know, <laughs> you go in the gym and, wow, look, look at the progress I made since uh, last month or something. It's, uh, it's more or less like maintaining it and, and trying to improve on certain areas and things like that. So Dorian, one question that I would love to ask that's maybe related is if you look back at the period of time between the end of your competitive career and now, uh, what have been one of your darkest periods or uh, dark period for you and how did you find your way out of it? What were the things that helped? Uh, The darkest period would probably be kind of the couple of years, the first couple of years after I uh, retired, um, you know, there was, uh, I was, uh, I didn't even know what was going on. I was waking up at night. I couldn't sleep. I was feeling nervous. And uh, uh, I was diagnosed with clinical depression. You know, I'd just been forced retired from this thing I've been doing for so long. Um, and a lot of things kind of came to the surface that maybe because you've got such tunnel vision while you're doing it. Um, I realized there was problems in my marriage that maybe I hadn't really looked at because, you know, you're just in this tunnel and keep going and keep going. So all these kind of things, you may be swept under the carpet, so to speak. <laughs> they all, you know, they all start popping out. Um, so, you know, I had been retired from this thing 
uh, that I was doing, which is, you know, can be quite traumatic for people retiring from their profession in any case. Um, my marriage was breaking up. Uh, somebody very close to me passed away. So all these things like, you know, perfect storm of, uh, of stress all at the same time for me to, to deal with. And, um, you know, the one thing that kind of got me through it was going to the gym. Although I didn't have that goal of training for a Mr. Olympia, just to go to the gym and train was like a form of meditation for me, um, where I would forget about the outside world and problems and, uh, so on. So, yeah, and even now I just, I just love to train. I'm not really, I'm not doing weight training as I used to now, but you know, for whether I'm riding my bike or swimming or doing yoga or, you know, functional training, whatever it is, I, I really, uh, love to exercise. And I think that, you know, that helped me get through that period. And it took quite a few years before I started, you know, um, balancing out and maybe, uh, you know, now it's, uh, it's 20 years since I was competing, you know, and I think, uh, I feel like I'm in a, you know, really good place now, but that's, that's a lot of time, man, 20 years. You know? <laughs> what helped you to find meaning uh in the sense that i mean was there just a day when you surprised yourself and you're like oh the clouds are not hanging over my head or did you sit down and journal or have a some type of friend or mentor who helped you to find uh a direction or a purpose after being a competitor competitor i for think so long? uh i think a lot of people kind of you know and, and um a lot of reading and stuff i did it's kind of you, you kind of got to figure it out for yourself and uh, at one point, I, you know, I say, hey, I've been doing this thing for 12, 15 years and I haven't been able to do this and do that. So let me, you know, go out and party and be crazy and go to nightclubs and let me travel and go here and uh, go on safari and things that I couldn't do before. So I started to realize instead of like looking at what you lost, look at what you gained. Right. You know, I couldn't imagine living that lifestyle that I was living as a professional bodybuilder now, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, uh, be way too restrictive now. I couldn't do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it took me some time to find a balance, but, uh, the benefits are, I feel much more a uh, free person now. I'm not, you know, I don't have to eat six times a day. I don't have to, you know, be at the gym at this time or, yeah, you know, I, I maintain some discipline on, you know, because that's my nature, but then I've had to learn to sometimes not have discipline, you know, right. <laughs> that makes sense to get balance. Mm-hmm. No, it does make sense. And you mentioned books. I'd love to, uh, I love to read. I mean, that's, uh, I always love to read. And I think that was a huge advantage for me when I did bodybuilding. I just consumed books on training and nutrition and, kind of worked it all out for myself and that that was half of the fun of it you know now guys have got nutritionists and trainers and managers and god knows what else um for me the whole this bodybuilding was an individual pursuit an individual test of character and everything it wasn't a team team sport you know are there any particular books that you've reread uh or gifted to other people well, I'm reading a lot of stuff at the moment. I've, I've read quite a lot of books from, from one guy uh, um, on a spiritual level, which has helped me. So I'll just say his name. His name is Eric Pepin. That's P-E-P-I-N. 
uh, if you guys want to check him out, uh, I think he's a great uh, spiritual teacher and techniques and meditation and things like that I find interesting at the moment. So, Is there a book of his that you would suggest people start with? Um, the one to start with would probably be Handbook of the Navigator or Meditation into Eternity. That would probably be the best one. Either of those two, the meditation book is more on, you know, teach you. Um, and Eric Pepin is very much like uh, Arthur Jones or, you know, uh, Bruce Lee. I call him Bruce Lee of spirituality because uh, it's it's kind of like spirituality slash science. And now science and spirituality are now pretty much coming together to be the same thing with, you know, quantum physics and stuff like that. So uh, I find his stuff very uh, logical, you know? So anyway, uh, if people are interested in spiritual side of life, I'd, I'd recommend go and read some of his stuff. So, so this is going to seem like a left turn, but I don't think it, I don't think it totally is. So, so you mentioned to, uh, our mutual friend Brian once, and, and I'm simplifying here, but <laughs> that freedom is not giving a fuck. And, I, I, maybe I'm misquoting you, but I, I would love to hear you elaborate on that. And maybe you, you can give context as well. Yeah, I, was, I think I was talking to myself at first, <laughs> you know, because, um, you know, there's still that thing. You're, you, you're Mr. Olympia, right? Six times Mr. Olympia, legend in the sport. So I guess you, you, you feel like you have to maintain some kind of image or, or whatever it is, you know? And uh, I thought, you know, am, am I doing this now? Am I trying to maintain some kind of, you know, am I doing this training, maintaining this level of physique for myself or am I doing it for, you know, for other people or other outside forces? Um, so I think it was a question for myself at first. Like, do you, are you going to, live your life or make decisions or in any way be controlled by the opinions of other people or what you perceive to be the other opinions of other people, which might not even be their opinion anyway. Uh, in any case, in the end, uh, you've got to live your life the way um, that you think you should live it at, at that time and not uh, be controlled. And we all are, you know, we, we're controlled all the time from the day we're born. We're controlled by by our parents' opinion, by the school's opinion, by the government's opinion, by the media's opinion, and so on. And uh, I want to be free of that. So basically, um, I, with the greater respect, I'm going to do what I need to do, um, taking care not to hurt anyone else. And that's it. I don't really give a fuck what anyone else thinks about that. And I've heard you also say that... Uh... And there are a few different metaphors, but that that life is like a movie, and I, I I enjoyed hearing you talk about that. I don't know if you could maybe uh, elaborate on that as well, because it seems like it's pretty closely related. You know, we we can go into quantum physics and stuff uh, on this, but I mean, what quantum physicists have, have discovered is that the reality we live in is not what we think it is, and it's made of. Uh, computer code and it's kind of our thoughts interact with this code so therefore your thoughts can help create your reality so um, you know you're on the Truman show man what, what do you 
What, what do you want it to be? You know, what do you want to do? What do you want to play in this movie? You know, um, create that uh, that story with your mind, you know, uh, and, and take steps to, to make it happen. And, and it can happen. So that's what I mean by it being a movie or a, a video game or, or something like that, you know? Being the director in your own movie. Uh, yeah, well, you're in a holographic movie, man. Check it out. <laughs> Yeah, but there's there's a lot of other subject matter that we could discuss that would that would definitely veer into that territory very quickly. Uh, at some point, we could talk about that. Because, well, we just wet people's appetite for next oh, yeah. time. We'll just wet people's yeah. appetite. And uh, for people listening or wondering what the hell I'm talking about, you can also look up Johns Hopkins and, and uh, psychedelic and research in my name, and you'll you'll see a number of things pop up. But the uh, one of the last questions, just just one or two more, is yeah. if you had a, a gigantic billboard and you could get a message out to millions of people, what might you put on that billboard? Does anything come to mind? We are one. We are one. We are one. We are one. Well, I think that's yeah, it. We're all, we're all part of one thing, man. We're all connected. Just, just like cells in a human body, they're all separate cells, but they make up the body. So... They're part of one thing, right? We are one. We are. Well, yeah. I think I think that's a good place to wrap up, Dorian. I, I I thank you so much for your time. And thanks for having me on, man. It's been fun. So you know, maybe we'll do me back again. People want me back again, and they want to ask more stuff. Let me know where it is, and we'll we'll get we'll get chatting. You know, I, I will let you know, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of questions. Uh, where can people? best find you online? Say hello. See what you're up to. Learn more about the certification that we mentioned. Yeah, there's, well, there's various places. Instagram is the Dorian Yates. Facebook, we've got DY Nutrition, a DY Nutrition website, and DY HIT website. Uh, so if you search Dorian Yates Nutrition, Dorian Yates High Intensity Training, um, you know, various ways you can get in touch with me. Well, once again, uh, this has been, I feel like, a conversation 20 plus years in the making. So I'm really thrilled to be able to connect via. Great. And I didn't remember that phone call we did 20 oh, years it was, ago. It was a long time ago. You've had a lot of phone calls. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the point being that you at the time were uh, the, the, the equivalent of say, reaching out to Bruce Lee from me, and you were very gracious in that phone call. And that stuck with me. That really stuck with me that you that you made the time. Even though it was a polite decline, you were very, very gracious. And oh, so, it, so in seeds, man, look what happened to the seed. Right? <laughs> now yeah. here we are. So, yeah. uh, so I want to, number one, thank you for the time. And for everybody listening, you can find links to everything we've talked about, all the books, the certifications, the websites, where you can learn more about Dorian is Instagram in the show notes for this episode. You can find the show notes for this episode and every other episode at tim.blog forward slash podcast or just search Tim Ferriss show uh, and show notes and it'll pop right up. And uh, that is all. So everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And until next time, keep experimenting, be safe and question your assumptions. 
Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check Check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by WordPress, my go-to platform for blogging, writing online, creating websites, everything. I love WordPress to bits. Uh, my site, every site, just about that I have, is run on WordPress, and the lead developer of WordPress, Matt Mullenweg has appeared on this podcast many times. The very first episode in particular is amazing. The second I took a ton of notes on, so you should check it out. But WordPress, where do I even begin? I mean, The New Yorker uses it, Jay-Z, Beyonce, they use it, 538, TechCrunch, TED, CNN, Time. Whether you are looking to create a personal blog, a business site, both, Neither? Something else? You'll make a huge impact when you build your website on WordPress.com. And directly from some friends at Google, I'm not going to quote them by name, but they say that WordPress offers the best out-of-the-box SEO, that's search engine optimization, imaginable. So if you're on WordPress, you immediately have a leg up on everybody else on search engines and so forth. In my experience, I'm no medical doctor of search engine optimization, but I, I will say that I used WordPress for years and fell in love with it to the extent that I became very close friends with Matt and then uh, became an investor uh, slash advisor to Automatic, which runs WordPress.com. That is how much I believe in this, and that's how a lot of my most successful products and investments have come about, because I'm in love with X, and then I seek out X. Nearly 30% of the internet is run on WordPress, and that includes everything from the huge sites that I mentioned to neighborhood sites, and it is super easy to get started. There's no need to worry about security or upgrades or hosting. They offer 24-7 support and handle all of that, which allows you to focus on creating the highest quality content that you can with the least amount of friction. I don't have to worry about downtime. I don't want to have to worry about getting emergency emails if I'm on vacation or something like that. And WordPress is my go-to solution for all of this. I trust all of my most important text on the internet to WordPress. And they can't buy that with a sponsorship. They can't buy that with anything. I want uptime, 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 and quality. And that is what I have selected after everything that I've looked at. So check it out. Go to WordPress. That's W-O-R-D-P-R-E-S-S dot com. WordPress.com forward slash Tim to receive 15% off of your website today. That's WordPress.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Soothe.com, the world's largest on-demand massage service. What? 
And let me tell you, I have a high bar for this stuff. I have body work done at least once a week because I've broken my body. I have 30 plus fractures and 100 plus MRIs. I need body work. So I have a very, very, very high bar for that. Soothe, which I've tested, I tested, my assistants tested, my employees tested, delivers a hand-selected, licensed, and experienced massage therapist to you in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. I've tested them in San Francisco, I've tested them in Austin, I've tested them all over the place, and I have to say, I was really, really amazed at the quality of therapist, and I do not accept mediocrity at all in this area. The process is super simple. Think of it as Uber for massages, right? You choose the kind of massage you want, say Swedish or sports massage, deep tissue, whatever. Then uh, if you want, you can opt for a couple's massage. I imagine that's an edge case, as the tech people say, but whatever. You set the length of your massage, so let's say you want 60 minutes, 90 minutes, two hours, and let's be real. If you want a proper massage, go for 90 or 120 minutes, for God's sake, and you select the gender of your therapist, and then click. You're off to the races. And they bring the massage table, sheets, oil, music, so you can unwind no matter where you are. And I have used this at Airbnbs, hotels, etc. Soothe is in 50 cities, including most major U.S. cities, as well as London, Sydney, Melbourne, Toronto, and Vancouver. So, number one, download the app Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E, in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store, and then use the, t- the code, let me try that again, use the code TITAN20. T-I-T-A-N-2-0, TITAN20, all caps, to get $20 off of your first massage. That's a lot. That's a very good discount, so you should use it. So, again, download the app, Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E, and try out the code TITAN20, all caps, for $20, not percent, $20 off your first massage. And if you're anything like me, I have been paying and I've been enjoying. So give it a shot. Try out Soothe and your muscles, nervous system, and sleep will thank you for it. What the fuck kind of read was that? It was pretty good. That's what I think. Okay. Enjoy. Bye.